This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Kishore Mabubani. Kishore is a former Singaporean diplomat and an academic. Kishore served as Singapore's ambassador to the United Nations, as well as president of the United Nations Security Council. He's the author of many books, including Has China Won? The Chinese Challenge to American Primacy. Kishore joined me to discuss his essay in the latest Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. His essay is called Australia's Choice, Can It Be a Bridge to Asia? Kishore talks about the geopolitical contest between the world's two great powers, the United States of America and the People's Republic of China. He explains how Southeast Asia views China differently to Australia. He advocates for Australia to change course in its approach to China and to urgently recognise the geopolitical reality, the reality being that China will become the number one power this century. Kishore also talks about the ways that Australia can acknowledge its geopolitical reality, that it in fact is located within Asia, and that working with regional forums like ASEAN are in its national interest. Kishore is refreshingly honest and engaging on this topic and reveals the importance of cultural sensitivity and understanding how the history of Southeast Asia informs the present. It is my real pleasure and delight to welcome my next guest, who is a first-time guest on Uncommon Sense, but it's certainly not the first time I've seen Kishore Mabubani speak. I was really privileged to get to see him speak in 2016 at the ANU's Crawford Leadership Forum, where he made some amazing contributions on Southeast Asia, on ASEAN. China and America geopolitical contest and he has been doing that and speaking and writing articles and books for a long time about all these issues and more. He's published eight books which include Can Asians Think? His latest book is called Has China Won? The Chinese Challenge to American Primacy and Kishore Mabubani is going to be discussing with me today his essay in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. It's titled Australia's Choice, Can It Be a Bridge to Asia? Now, to just give you a little sense of Kishore's experience, he is a former Singaporean diplomat and he has had a great career in diplomacy in general, having served in the Singapore Foreign Service for 33 years. He was also twice Singapore's ambassador to the United Nations and also served as president of the UN Security Council. And he also is currently Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. I'm sure it gives you a great picture as to what we might be discussing today. So I welcome Kishore now, who's going to speak about that article, but also will reference his book, which is so fantastic, Has China Won? Thank you so much, Kishore, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm very happy to join you. I'm really, really pleased to be able to pick your brain and ask you all the questions I've had about these topics because they do come up a lot in Australia, especially when I'm thinking about the geopolitical contest between the two great powers that exist at the moment. 
the United States and the People's Republic of China. And certainly in Australia, we've had quite a fluctuating relationship with China, the government of China especially. And it is something that has caused concern for, I think, a number of people who aren't necessarily the hawkish types that you do see in Canberra. So I'm very keen to touch on that because clearly that is a core part of the tension that exists in your piece about Australia's role in Asia. But first of all, I wondered if you could explain the title of your latest book, Has China Won? Because it is a very interesting and provocative title and it kind of flips the discussion and the typical narrative that we hear on its head. Uh, thank you. Let me begin with some good news. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually come up with another book <laughs> since oh, great. China One. And the good news is that it's a free book and it's called The Asian 21st Century. It's published by Springer in Germany. And uh, since its release in January, it's been the, the publisher expected 20,000 downloads. Instead, it has had 1.93 million downloads in 160 countries around the world. Now, the reason I mentioned the book is that I think it's very important for any Australian to understand that 200 years of Western domination of world history, which frankly helped Australia a lot, since Australia, as you know, is a very strong member of the Western community, that 200 years of Western domination of world history, which was an artificial period in world history, is coming to an end. And what you're seeing is the natural return of Asia. And I call it the natural return of Asia because from the year one to the year 1820, for 1800 out of the last 2000 years, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. And so what we are seeing now is the natural return of China, India, and the rest of Asia. And of course, Australia's challenge, which is what I speak about in my article, is that geographically, you're not in Canada, <laughs> you are in Asia. <laughs> so in a sense, uh, Australia will have to make some strategic adjustments to dealing with a neighbourhood that is now much more stronger and much more powerful than it used to be for all of the uh, Australia's history. So the key point that any Australian has to understand is that when your strategic neighborhood changes fundamentally, you have to make strategic adjustments. And I think it'd be wiser for Australia to make the strategic adjustments early rather than be forced to make them later. And, and that's one of the big messages that I'm trying to convey. And this doesn't mean I want to emphasize this too, that Australia is in a hostile neighborhood. In fact, frankly, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, is a geopolitical gift to Australia because while Australians worry about China, they, many of them are unaware that there's a geopolitical buffer called ASEAN that stands between Australia and China. And if Australia develops good ties with Southeast Asia, which is what I recommend in my article in the Australian Foreign Affairs, then frankly, that provides Australia a layer of protection because it's surrounded by a friendly community just north of it. 
Mm. And in the Australian Foreign Affairs Magazine's July edition of which we're referencing here, your article, which is titled Australia's Choice, Can It Be a Bridge to Asia, really does set out the effectiveness of ASEAN. And Mm. I'll read out the opening sentence because I do find it to be an excellent point that encompasses the article, which is Australia's strategic dilemma in the 21st century is simple. It can choose to be a bridge between the East and the West in the Asian century or the tip of the spear projecting Western power into Asia. And that's highlighting that tension between East and West. And you do highlight that throughout the piece about ASEAN members and their perceptions of Australia. And I was really Mm. struck by the anecdote that you gave us in the article where you spoke to people who who are part of ASEAN and work within ASEAN. And you say, Mm. how do you perceive Australia And it really did kind of shock me. I wonder if you could recount the story for us. Yes. Well, I I was having a meeting with some very senior Southeast Asian diplomats, actually. Very, very senior. Now mostly retired. And so I said, what's your perception of uh, uh, Australia in Asia? And they, to my absolute surprise, spontaneously, within a split second, they said Australia is a Trojan horse. And uh, that, of course, shocked me too, you know, uh, mm. because that's the perception that Australia, in a sense, is trying to represent Western interests and Western concerns in Asia without being sensitive to the needs and concerns of its fellow Asian neighbours. And that was very, very striking. And this is in, this is from a country that is very friendly to Australia. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so it wasn't from a hostile country. <laughs> wow. For anyone who remembers Paul Keating's era and Gareth Evans, and we just had Gareth Evans on the show a couple of weeks back, there was a lot of discussion about seeking and looking for our security within Asia and not from Asia. And of course, APEC was one of those forums that Keating pushed very hard, but also ASEAN was discussed, I think, a lot more at that time in public debates, whereas nowadays it's not really something that comes up very often. So listeners here might be forgiven for not even being that familiar anymore with ASEAN, even though I'm sure they should be. And I wondered if you could share with us the significance of ASEAN to Australia and why it's been such a gift. Well, you know, I must say that Paul Keating and uh, the people who who work with him, Gareth Evans, Michael Costello, and I worked with them because I was then the permanent secretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Singapore. And they were very wise and they understood that Australia would have to develop a long-term mutually beneficial relationship with all its Asian neighbours, including ASEAN, including China and India too which unfortunately, as you know, the Scott Morrison government seemed to be completely oblivious to to the needs and concerns of its uh, Asian neighbours. And I would say that if Australia is looking for a path in the 21st century, it'd be wiser to go back and look at the speeches that were made in the 1990s by Paul Keating and Gareth Evans and others on how Australia can find its destiny in the 21st century. Because, you know, Australians have got so used to the idea that in our world, the number one power will always be the United States of America. And sometime in the next 10 to 15 years, the United States will become the number two power. And, you know, that's, in a sense, the big message I tried to convey in my book, Has China Won, which you referred to earlier and you asked me about earlier. 
in that book, I emphasize that actually it is possible for the United States and China to have a mutually beneficial relationship with each other without having to go at loggerheads with each other. Unfortunately, the relations between U.S. and China have been getting worse and worse, as you know, especially including the last few months. Uh, so that creates a very dangerous situation for our region. And Australia, actually, this is where I talk about in the first paragraph of my article about Australia being a, being a bridge between the West and Asia. Australia can also help to be a bridge in terms of explaining to the United States that it should find ways and means of working with the Asian countries, many of whom want to have good ties with the United States and good ties with China, and don't want to be forced to choose between one or the other. And Australia can be helpful in terms of explaining why most Asian countries feel that way. And, and, and that was in the past done by Australian diplomats. You know, you had very good Australian diplomats like Richard Woolcott, who would explain to Americans how Southeast Asians thought, what they believed in and all that. But unfortunately, all that was lost in recent years. And therefore, that's created a problem for Australia because Australia has progressively become more and more alienated from its Asian neighbours and, of course, especially alienated from China. Yeah. And there is also a gap in the ability at the moment, at least in the contemporary times, between Australia and Southeast Asia and other Asian nations in terms of culture and communication. Because as you point out in the article, Australia hasn't really adapted in the way that we communicate diplomatically with other countries in our region. And we seem to be quite ignorant of that, or at least if we are aware of it when deciding not to change. And I wondered, could you take us through those subtleties of diplomatic communication that Australia is not picking up on? Yeah, I think what, what I was recommending in my article is just basic Asian principles of being a good neighbour. And if you're a neighbour of somebody, you should at least make an effort to understand your neighbor a little bit more and the history and culture of your neighbors. And of course, if Australia was in Canada, it would have a wonderful time talking to Americans because Americans are very frank and very direct, just like Australians are. And there, there'd be no problems communicating between Australia and United States. But I mean, Australia is not Canada. Australia is right in the middle of Asia in some ways. And so it's got to understand its neighbors. So for example, Indonesia, Indonesians have a very deep and ancient and subtle culture, which emphasizes that you must never be direct. <laughs> if you want to make a point, you must be subtle and make sure that you don't in any way make your partner lose face. And uh, even though the Chinese culture is not as subtle as Indonesian or Javanese culture, still in, in China, losing face does matter. And so, for example, when the Scott Morrison government sort of blatantly just publicly called for an inquiry into the origins of COVID without thinking about the sensitivities of China, that was very, very unwise. I mean, it is correct to ask for an investigation into the origins of COVID, but there are ways and means of conveying the message in a way that you don't offend a country like China. And I thought that was very unwise. And I want to remind your listeners that the oldest, one of the oldest definition of a diplomat is someone who can tell you to go to hell. 
<laughs> in such a way that you feel that you're going to enjoy the journey. <laughs> now, this, this this is diplomacy even in the even among Western countries. So, mm. now, what is amazing is that uh, the Morrison government just forgot the ABC of diplomacy in its relations uh, with several Asian countries, as you know. And as a result of that, sadly, alienated many countries, including uh, China. And to some extent, I can tell you privately, even Indonesia was alienated by the Morrison government because they they weren't paying attention to the interests and sensitivities of Indonesia at all. That's absolutely true. And when there was a big COVID outbreak, we didn't seem to care and provide the kind of response you would think from a neighbour either. One of the things that you raise in the article is around ASEAN and its function and the ways that different countries might use ASEAN to speak amongst each other or speak to each other when they're not on good terms. And I know that a range of issues have come up in recent times, like the South China Sea and the Nine Dash Line. There's also clearly a long history between Vietnam and China, which you raise. And I really loved this reference that you made to an ancient piece of Vietnamese wisdom, which you said says that a good Vietnamese leader must be able to stand up to China, but they must also be able to get along with China. If they cannot do both, they cannot be a leader of Vietnam. And you say that over time, Australia may wish to adopt this Vietnamese wisdom And that was very striking and poignant to me. But I wondered if you could expand on that point around Mm. the function of ASEAN, the many different functions that perhaps aren't as public as Mm. the things we see in the news. Yes. And you're right. I do believe that the Vietnamese who have lived with the Chinese for 2,000 years and were Mm. actually occupied by China for 1,000 years, (laughs) (laughs) understand the Chinese better than any of us do, and therefore have learned the art of getting along with China. And as I say, they must be able to stand up to China, but they must also be able to get along with China. And that's something that I think the Morrison government completely was oblivious to. It just thought its only role in life was to stand up and offend China uh, all the time, which is very, very unwise, uh, what the Morrison government was trying to do. And this is where, frankly, the one of the main points I make in my article is that the Southeast Asians, because they have actually, Australia, as you know, is a newly arrived country within the Asian format. But many of the countries in Southeast Asia have been living next to Chinese power for over a thousand years or more. And therefore, they've learned how to handle China and how to work with China. And, And certainly now, it's important for Australians to understand that, you know, China went through a hundred bad years, you know, the century of humiliation from 1842 to 1949. Every Australian student should be told the story of China's century of humiliation because that's how the Chinese are looking at the world through their own historical lenses. And by the way, I have a free edX course, EDX course that Australians can enroll in free of charge to understand the century of humiliation that China has gone through. 
Because if you don't understand the century of humiliation, then you don't understand why some issues are extremely sensitive to China. And obviously, the one issue that they are very sensitive to is Taiwan, because Taiwan is the last living symbol of the century of humiliation. It reminds Chinese of how Taiwan was separated initially from China after the 1895 war between China and Japan, when China lost the war and Taiwan was was, uh, lost at that time. So there is a lot of history behind many of these issues. And if Australians are not aware of this history, they will end up walking into minefields, literally, uh, Mm. uh, if they're not careful. And this is why, in a sense, if Australia could study and observe carefully how all these uh, uh, Southeast Asian countries, whether it's Thailand or Indonesia or Malaysia, Singapore, how they how they manage China and how they manage to you know have differences with China but manage the differences and at the same time ensure that you try to find win-win solutions. And of course, it helps a lot that the ten ASEAN countries are working together as a group. And and frankly, ASEAN provides in many ways a kind of a valuable geopolitical buffer, as I said earlier, for Australia. But to use that buffer, Australians must treat ASEAN with utmost respect. But of course, in the case of many Australians, it's not not just that they don't respect ASEAN, Mm. they're not even aware that ASEAN exists. (laughs) (laughs) And how do you pay respect to something, something that you don't even know exists? Mm-hmm. Totally true. And I want to just touch on what you said there about Taiwan, because it came up recently, or well, it's come up a lot, obviously, in world news, but it came up recently domestically when China's ambassador to Australia, Zhao Chan, delivered an address to Australia's National Press Club. And the main news story that seemed to come out of that through the media was that China was prepared to use all necessary means against Taiwan in certain circumstances, and everyone was one once again, beating the drums of war, to use some of Peter Dutton's terminology. And it seems that, as you point out, Australians aren't aware of that history, that century of humiliation, but then also why Taiwan is so fundamental to China and also why Chinese leaders need to look tough on Taiwan. And I thought that that was such an excellent point that you made in your book and that you've made recently as well, is around not only how China lost Taiwan, the territory of Taiwan, after the Sino-Japanese War, but also that it thought it was going to take back Taiwan through the Versailles Peace Conference, but was actually denied it by the Western powers at the time. And so therefore you write that history has taught the Chinese not to accept Western assurances. I found that your explaining of that history was so helpful to try and place into context the Chinese perspective to make us try and understand that it's not just about a perceived threat. Well, I think the important thing to know about Taiwan is that if tomorrow the government in Taiwan declares independence and says we're going to establish an independent republic of Taiwan, which as you know doesn't exist, and right now we have an independent republic of China, not an independent mm. republic of Taiwan. And if the Taiwanese government declares independence, China will declare war on Taiwan. And it's very important to know this, because if you want to prevent war across the Taiwan Straits, don't change the status quo. And by the way, for a long time, many American governments understood that very, very well. And uh, I can tell you that the, one of the presidents who put the incredible amount of pressure on Taiwan 
not to declare independence was President George W. Bush. Because right after he invaded Iraq in 2003, he wanted to work with China to find a solution to the Iraq issue. At that time, there was a president in Taiwan called Chen Shui-bian who wanted to push for independence. And it was the Americans who put a lot of pressure on the Taiwanese government not to declare independence because they said, if you do so, you're going to lead to war across the Taiwan Straits. Now, unfortunately, the governments in the Washington, D.C. who understood and who were sensitive to this issue no longer exists, and therefore you have a problem. And that's where, frankly, Australia should be playing a helpful role in this regard in reminding the United States that it was previous American policy not to change the status quo in the Taiwan Straits. And the best way to preserve peace uh, in the Taiwan Straits is to preserve the status quo and not change anything. And, and so if, if Australians don't understand this, they may be encouraging measures that will lead to war across the Taiwan Straits. And that's why it's very important to understand the history and background of all these sensitive geopolitical issues. Absolutely. And that relates back to one of your arguments in this article where you argue that Australia has been making flawed choices, especially in relation to the Quad and also AUKUS. And another kind of example of Australians not really knowing about the Quad is that the only reason why we probably know that is because Anthony Albanese jumped on a plane as soon as he became Prime Minister to attend the Quad meeting and therefore it was all over the news. But generally the Quad is not something that we discuss all that often publicly, but it does send a signal, as you write, about Australia's involvement in the region and its approach to China. And I wondered if you could explain to us the repercussions of the Quad and AUKUS from Australia's actions. Well, I want to emphasize one thing. Australia is an independent, sovereign country. Every independent, sovereign country has the right to decide what to do for to enhance its security. So Australia has the sovereign right to join the Quad. Mm. Uh, and so we cannot say, Australia, you cannot join the Quad. But at the same time, Australia has got to also understand the political signals it is sending by joining the Quad. And there are two signals it is sending. Number one, even though the, uh, the members of the Quad deny that it is an anti-China organization, everyone knows that the Quad is an anti-China organization. I mean, it's, it's just undeniable, okay? Yeah. So that creates a problem. You know, Australia says, no, 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 it is not anti-China, but it is joining an anti-China organization. That's a problem that the Quad has. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Hugh White, has an essay uh, in another magazine, I think called Quarterly Review, where he talks about that, what the message is sent by the Quad. But secondly, and more importantly, I think uh, Australians should ask themselves, and this is the point of my article in the Australian Foreign Affairs, don't you want to at least align your foreign policy positions to make them closer to the ASEAN states? And the ASEAN states want to be able to stand up to China but they don't want to join any organization that is perceived to be anti-China. And so that, that is the dilemma, strategic dilemma for Australia. How do you want to position yourself in the 21st century? Because up to now, many of the decisions have been made in some ways unthinkingly without looking at the very changed geopolitical environment that Australia will have to deal with in the 21st century. In many ways, 
some Australians think <laughs> that London is more important to Australia's future than Jakarta is. And that's absolutely absurd. But yeah. many Australians believe that. And it's, of course, shown in the decision to join AUKUS. And AUKUS, as you know, is about Australia, UK, US. Now, the British have abandoned Southeast Asia many times. As you know, mm. Singapore fell in 1942 because the, uh, the British didn't defend Singapore. And Australia also suffered the consequences of that. And the British had a naval base in Singapore and they abandoned it in 1968. <laughs> and you are asking the British to come back and defend Australia? I mean, that's a joke. I mean, surely yeah. that's a joke. And especially when you... When, and, and the other thing that's very... The one thing that really upset Indonesia is that Australia is going ahead to, exp to acquire nuclear submarines without realizing that a nuclear submarine would be seen to be threatening by your neighbor, Indonesia. Mm. And, and, and aren't you concerned about what Indonesia will think about your actions? <laughs> and I was shocked that no one, no one in the Morrison government said, hey, we are slapping Indonesia publicly. Mm. No one thought of that. I mean, that, that, that is an amazing amount of ignorance and insensitivity in the Morrison government that I'm trying to help Australia out by saying, hey, Please learn to understand your neighbours and don't do things that are perceived to be slaps in the face by your neighbours. And AUKUS is clearly a slap in the face, it's certainly to Indonesia. Yeah. I'm speaking with Kishore Mabubani and we're talking about his article, Australia's Choice, Can It Be a Bridge to Asia?, which is published in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine, the July 2022 edition. Now, Kishore, I think that Paul Keating would agree with you because he gave a, a a speech, or well, actually it was more of a Q&A session at the National Press Club in Canberra, saying that he really essentially thought AUKUS was a joke. He had some very strong words to say, but one of the more poignant points that he made and that I believe you've also pointed out was that this transition from diesel submarines to nuclear-powered submarines is really a shift from defence of Australia to offence, which is obviously the crux of this insult to Indonesia, also the signalling to China the show of support to the United States and its role in Asia and the region more broadly. And I just wondered, do you have any indication or thoughts as to how the Albanese government should manage this AUKUS agreement now that they've come on board with it? How can they manage the relationship with Southeast Asia and China but yeah. still engage in this AUKUS agreement that yeah. they've committed to? Yeah, well, I would say that I have, I have no doubt that the Morrison government has created a huge problem for the Albanese government because right now the Albanese government will look very weak in the eyes of Australians if it suddenly walk away from AUKUS. So I would say that the uh, Albanese government should set up an independent commission to review and get some very seasoned Australian diplomats and thinkers to review the costs and benefits of AUKUS. What does Australia gain and what does Australia lose? And if, if Australia did an independent, objective audit of the diplomatic and uh, security gains and losses of the AUKUS deal, it would, it would clearly show that Australia loses more than it gains by joining this AUKUS uh, arrangement. And therefore, if you had an independent commission that verified that, that would provide the Albanese government a face-saving way out or backing out of it without being attacked by, you know, the right-wing hawks in Australia 
for being soft and weak in his foreign policy. Mm, and that's, that's a challenge that the Albanese government has. Yeah, what an excellent suggestion. I hope that everyone's listening to that. Kishore, it was really interesting to see that Chinese Premier Li Keqiang actually reached out to the Albanese government. He was seeking to re-establish a connection and communication between the Australian and Chinese governments, which obviously we all know there was a big communication freeze at all levels, essentially, at the ministerial level and the, the leadership level. And you referenced that in your piece as well. But you also point out that Albanese in response kind of reaffirmed that Australia's national interests and the Australian government's priorities are still clearly aligned with the Quad's agenda, which, as you've pointed out, clearly has an anti-China agenda. So I was thinking about that tension between the Quad, but then also the ASEAN position, which is that we'd like to have relationships with both China and the United States. And you set out in this article some suggestions as to how Australia might consider ASEAN more and its position in relation to ASEAN positions and what it could be doing while remaining a member of the Quad to try and realign or gently reposition itself and its foreign policy. Let me emphasise that I'm not advocating that Australia should leave the Quad. Mm. I think that, as I emphasise, is Australia's decision. But at the same time, as you know, Australia participates in many, many different organizations and agreements, like, for example, the world's largest free trade agreement, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which includes China. So, for example, Australia can play a helpful role uh, using its membership of the Quad to persuade India to join the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. I mean, as you know, Australia is very keen to bring India to play a bigger role in Asian affairs, and Singapore is very keen to see India play a bigger role in uh, uh, Asian affairs. And maybe the best way that we can do that is for Australia and Singapore to work together to persuade India to join the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. And yeah, this is where Australia's membership of the Quad can be helpful because you have that additional relationship with India. So Australia can use APEC to reach out to China. Australia can use RCEP to reach out to China too. And of course, you know, when I when I was the permanent secretary of the foreign ministry in the mid-1990s, I advocated the creation of what I call the community of 12, 10 plus 2. 10 meaning the 10 ASEAN countries plus the two Australia and New Zealand. So this is something that can also be considered by the new Albanese government to push for a new community of 12 so that Australia then becomes seen, seen to be closer to its Southeast Asian partners. And the closer that Southeast Asia, Australia is seen to its Southeast Asian partners, that would also help Southeast Asia helping to you know, improve Australia's strategic position in Asia. Indeed. And I know Paul Keating has certainly supported that idea as well in the past. So it's it's something that has been on the public agenda, at least on the more progressive side of politics for a little mm. while. I wanted to, to talk about the conclusion that you make in this article as well, because you look at the implications of Australia if it chooses the latter option, which is to, as you said at the beginning of the piece, be a spear of Western influence and, as the other ASEAN nations had said, to kind of fulfil the role as the Trojan horse for the United States, the deputy sheriff, 
a country that's not really recognising its true position within Asia and also recognising Southeast Asian countries and the way that they do politics and, and foreign policy. And you come up with, I guess, a comparison between Australia and Cuba. And I wondered if you could just explain what you've thought through as some of the potential scenarios if Australia continues down this path or if it decides to follow the suggestions that you have in here. Yeah. You know, I can tell you that I hesitated a lot before putting in the reference to Australia being a potential Cuba in Asia, because I knew that that would offend many Australians who'd be very upset by such a suggestion. But I want to emphasize that I put that in as a friend of Australia, saying, hey, watch out. You don't want to really stand out and be so different from the rest of your neighbors that you're seen to be a foreign object and one that doesn't get along with its neighbors, you know. And if all the Southeast Asian countries have managed to find ways and means, despite their differences with China, to be able to get along with China, and Australia remains uh, hostile and detached and indifferent to China, then there's a danger of Australia isolating itself. So as a friend of Australia, I'm saying, you really don't want to end up in that position. You want to be in a position where you are seen to be a bridge between US and China, rather than a sort of a very hostile anti-China outpost of the West uh, in Asia. But of course, all this requires very, very careful and nuanced analysis by Australia of where its long-term destiny lies. Because, you know, at the end of the day, in geopolitics, the key word is geography. Geography is a geo in geopolitics, and geography is destiny. And Australia will be a neighbor of Asia for the next 1,000 years. And it's important for Australia to work out a policy of being able to get along with Asia, because it is going to be with Asia for the next 1,000 years. Yeah. And just to close out this conversation, Kishore, you have an excellent podcast out called Asian Peace Talks. And in your latest episode, you were speaking with Sarang Shidor from the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Yeah. And I was really interested in that conversation because you were focusing on or trying to understand the United States's actions and motivations in relation to China and its national interest and what it was actually trying to do. And I really loved hearing that because it was coming from, uh, not from the United States perspective, but from Southeast Asia perspective, mm-hmm. trying to gauge what was happening. And I wondered if you could reflect on that, especially because we don't, like we have some control over our actions in relation to the competition between the US and China. But did you have any insights into the United States' role, given Australia's close relationship with it, and what its true intentions are towards China? Well, I would say, you know, I want to emphasise that all the 10 ASEAN countries, well, maybe with the possible exception of Myanmar, Mm -hmm. which is going through a difficult time now, all the 10 ASEAN countries want to have good relations with China, but they also want to have good relations with the United States, and they don't want to choose between one and the other. So when all my writings, I'm actually trying to help the United States sustain its long-term positions in Asia by, by adopting a more intelligent, thoughtful policy that doesn't force the Asian countries to choose between US and China. So I keep emphasizing that I speak in all my writings as a friend of the United States, and not as an enemy or adversary of the United States. And in fact, all, all my, especially my book uh, has China won 
if you look at my last chapter, I'm trying to explain why there are five non-contradictions between the U.S. and China, especially in Asia, and how U.S. and China can get along with each other in ways that benefit the American people. And, you know, uh, if you look at chapter seven of my book, Has China Won?, I point out that America has become, sadly, a plutocracy, a country where the average income of the bottom 50 percent hasn't gone up for the past 30 years, which explains why Donald Trump may come back in 2024. So if we have an interest in making sure that Donald Trump doesn't come back in 2024, we should be helping the United States to do well uh, economically and to grow its economy and do well. And, and so this is where, frankly, working with Asia and working with China will be good for the American people. And, 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 and at the end of the day, that creates a better society in America, a stronger society in America. That's good for us. Indeed. And obviously, you, you point out in the article as well that there are really clear examples where America could step up, where they could compete with China in the investment realm, especially with Indonesia. And you're pointing out the fast rail investments. Uh, America, Absolutely. yeah, expressing its concern, but they're not actually stepping up and providing a competing offer or providing, mm. you know, some kind of investment in the region. Yeah. Well, that's what the Indonesian officials told me, you know, when Americans mm. complained to Indonesia saying, why are you joining the Belt and Road Initiative? As you know, the fast train within Jakarta and Bandung is being built by the Chinese. And the Indonesian response is, why, why don't you come and build some infrastructure for us? <laughs> You'll be very happy if you did so. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, Kishore, it's been such an absolute privilege and pleasure to speak with you today and talk about such a range of issues, especially through this excellent article, which is in the Australian Foreign Affairs magazine and is called Australia's Choice, Can It Be a Bridge to Asia? I want to say a big thank you to you for your time and generosity today. And uh, I'll post up the links to all of those resources that you referenced during our chat today as well. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. Thank you very much. I've just been speaking with Kishore Mabubani, who is a former Singaporean diplomat and an academic as well as an author. He's Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore and has had a whole range of diplomatic roles across his career, which I referenced at the beginning of this conversation. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.